Well, welcome everyone. Good afternoon. Good morning, wherever you're at. Um, I'm Alan Hillary. Uh, I'm your host for your co-host for the Be Data Lit podcast. I am here with my co-host, uh, Sarah now Rodriguez, and we have two special guests today that we are excited about. We have Catherine Dignazio. Um, she's <laughs> she's an assistant professor of urban science and planning in the Department of Urban Studies and Planning at MIT. Um, and she's also the co-author of Data Feminism, along with Lauren Klein, our other guest. And Lauren is she is a Winship Distinguished Research Professor and Associate Professor in the Departments of English and Quantitative Theory and Methods at Emory University. And so we're really excited to get started to chat with them. And so we're going to have Sarah kick off the conversation. Thank you, Catherine and Lauren, for being here today. Uh, both of us are really excited to have you here, especially just reading, uh, starting to read Data Feminism, but also just knowing the space that both of you have been really speaking into um, data literacy, which is why we're here today. And it's a busy end of semester for both of you, from what I was hearing. Uh, just as kicking off, just because we are data literacy focused uh, as a podcast and really enabling people to be advocates in that space, uh, can you tell us just how you got to this point of writing a book like Data Feminism? Sure, maybe I'll start. This is Catherine. Uh, and so let's see, my background is uh, in sort of software development and database programming on one side, and then art and design on another side. Um, which for me always came together actually in data visualization and mapping. Um, and so like those were the worlds for me that like connected those two seemingly not connected things, um, like right brain, left brain uh, sort of thing. Um, and back in 20, gosh, 15, I was going to a, a conference about responsible data visualization that a friend of mine, Mushan Zeraviv, had organized. And he was like, hey, could you help me out? We're trying to, you know, uh, get people out to the conference. Could you, like, write a blog post about it or something? Um, I was like, yeah, actually, I've been thinking about something recently. Um, and so I, I wrote this blog post. And it was, uh, what would feminist data visualization look like? And so saying, like, what would a feminist approach to visualizing data look like? And what would we kind of have to, to rethink to do that? And it's super short, and it's very speculative, and it wasn't, you know, it, it's not, I didn't spend all that much time on it. Um, and then in that circulated a lot, at least in data visualization circles of circulating. And, uh, and through that, um, a person who had, who's a friend who had just uh, seen Lauren talk at Northeastern University in Boston was like, you have to know Lauren Klein because she actually gave a talk about exactly this topic at Northeastern University last week. Um, so maybe I'll pass to Lauren now to pick up the story. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So maybe I'll work backwards. So yeah, so I've been working on this project at this point. It was pretty new, but I was interested in some of the early visualization designers who created images that looked pretty different from the types of examples that we tend to cull from the history of visualization. Like usually we're like, oh, you know, William Playfair, he invented the pie chart or like, oh, let's go find the first time series or whatever. Um, but there were all sorts of people experimenting incredibly creatively with all sorts of ways of representing data. And they've sort of been written out of the history. And this is largely because they were women. They were in careers that were not considered very professional, like they were early childhood educators, things like this, rather than, you know, being a political economist or something like that. Um, so I was in the midst of this sort of archival recovery project. I've been traveling around to lots of archives and I'd begun to think about not just the fact that these women were women, but also that they seem to be doing something that seemed to me as like a proto-feminist approach to data visualization. And we can talk a little bit more about what this means, but you don't need to be a woman to be a feminist or have a feminist approach. And so I was sort of thinking about all these same ideas. And then Catherine's post came along and I was like, ah, like, this is totally it. This is what I was talking about. And yeah. And so our, um, 
our mutual Catherine's friend, uh, but who happened to know people who I knew, uh, put us in touch. And I guess the rest is history. Um, but I guess I should maybe back up and say, right now I work at Emory University, but I've actually only been there for a couple of years. For a long time before that, I taught at Georgia Tech. Um, and I taught in an interdisciplinary sort of humanities and applied media studies department. And my background, like Catherine's, is sort of split between software development, which I did in the early 2000s and the late 90s and the sort of in the wake and during the first dot-com rise and then crash. Um, and then I kind of had a radical recalibration of priorities and went to grad school in English. <laughs> and um, I always sort of had this other uh, sort of more technical aspect of my work off to the side and fell into a field which was really emerging in the late 2000s, early 2010s called digital humanities, which is all about bringing computational and just sort of technical approaches more generally to humanistic research questions. And so that's sort of have what had led me to this question of like what feminist data visualization looks like. Um, and yeah, and Catherine and I met up and we turned out we had more friends in common and we decided to write a short paper together. We wrote it for the um, IEEE Viz conference, um, just sort of outlining some uh, basic principles of what a feminist approach to visualization would look like. And on that basis, uh, we were approached by a series editor at MIT Press to write a book. And I guess like when MIT Press says, do you want to write a book? You kind of say yes. <laughs> and so before we knew it, we were writing a book together and we, you know, now we're, we know each other incredibly well. Um, and we're very good friends. But at the time when we started writing, we had only just worked together that one time. So here we are. <laughs> so it's like a leap of faith. <laughs> it's like, hey, you just met this person. Would you like to write a book with them? <laughs> like, sure. <laughs> but there's there's maybe an important thing to say there as part of the story, which is that like as we set out, so we, so we wrote that paper that Lauren mentioned, and then as we set out to actually kind of do a book length project, um, and actually I think it was the editor. So one of the uh, one of the editors uh, of this series is D David Weinberger and. Uh, early on when we were working on the book proposal, he was like, you know, I think you all are talking about more than visualization, you know? And we were like, you know, we are, because one of our realizations was like, you know, if you, if you're, you know, a visualization is like, comes later <laughs> in like the, what we might call the data processing pipeline, right? It could either be like an output at the end, or it's a kind of analytic tool that you use in the, um, as you're exploring your data. Um, but it's not like at the beginning of a process of a research project. Um, and so one of our realizations from doing that was thinking like, yeah, you really, you really can't think about feminist data visualization without backing up and thinking about like that whole process and that pipeline being feminist. And so that's where like our, I would say our scope expanded to think about like really what does a feminist approach to data science as a whole practice uh, sort of look like. So that was maybe an important um, expansion that we did in the book. Yeah, and how would you describe what data feminism is if someone, well, I'm asking, so how would you describe, how would you describe it? Because, um, you know, again, I started reading some of the book and I know you talk about intersectionality and addressing other layers of inequity and stuff of that nature. But then when you hear data feminism, you know, my mind went for a few seconds to more or less more focused on a woman's point of view um, in terms of the inequity issue. So I would totally just love to hear um, how we should see it and understand it. Sure. Yeah, no, really fair and good question. Um, yeah, one of the things that we try to really emphasize in the book um, is the feminism that we're drawing from, and we and we think in a way the feminism that is the most urgent and important feminism of right now is intersectional feminism. Um, and so this comes to us from the work of women of color feminists, and in particular the work of black feminists in the United States, who have said for over a hundred years, if not more, Lauren can tell us exactly, but like, <laughs> but like, um, this has been a long running theme of black feminism, um, which is that like, we cannot, you know, we can't talk about inequality and only talk about sexism because there's so many other dimensions of it. Um, and in particular, if we think about, um, the, the experiences of black women and how they face simultaneously, 
uh, sexism and racism and the ways that those compound uh, and intersect. And that's like the key metaphor there. Um, and so when we take intersectional feminism really seriously, it, it's a real actually expansion of our notion of what feminism is. And, and it, it means that feminism is not only for women, it's not only about women, it's not even only about gender, although it, of course, always has that lens to it. Um, it really is about power. And so it's like looking at these, um, the forces of structural oppression that uh, reproduce inequality and structural inequality and how those intersect. So how do racism and sexism intersect? Or how does sexism, racism, and colonialism or ability, how do all those things uh, intersect um, to produce unequal outcomes for people? And, and how, do those made, how are those made manifest in data sets, databases, data systems, visualizations, data products, uh, and so on? Because those forces of oppression rear their head uh, you know, and that's in a way what was one of our motivations for writing the book is they, like we're having all these conversations in this day and age about like algorithmic bias and bias data sets and all these kind of things. And a lot of people are saying, oh, my goodness, like, how could this be? Uh, how could the data set be biased or how could an algorithm be biased? It's a computer, you know. Um, but in fact, if we come sort of uh, with a solid understanding of intersectional feminism, we would know to look for these things. This would be very predictable that our data systems would fail us in precisely these ways that have to do with uh, racism, sexism, and other kinds of inequities. Um, so, Lauren, that was my stab at it. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, that was, that was terrific. Maybe I'll just, I'll sort of, I'll emphasize something and then try to, to encapsulate something. So the thing that I want to emphasize is that what intersectional feminism contributed to a larger and not always unified conversation about feminism is really this focus on power by which intersectional feminists really mean like the root cause, the reason why we experience racism, sexism, the, the reason why we have these oppressive algorithmic systems, right? It's not enough to say like, hey, look, that thing is sexist. Or like, oh no, let's fix the sexism or the racism or the colonialism. But you need to approach any particular situation from the perspective of understanding how you got to that point. And prior to the work of intersectional feminism, there really hadn't been enough emphasis on how inter intersecting forces of power, some of which lead to certain experiences of privilege on the one hand and then oppression on the other, how those produce the sexism and racism that we experience in the world. So that's really sort of what I would say. That's like the, the takeaway from what intersectional feminism brings to the conversation. And so what we try to do is say, hey, look, you know, we have ample evidence of how not just data systems and data sets, but data itself is this tremendous form of power. And for that reason, it is affected by all these same forces, these same forces of power that intersectional feminism has taught us to look out for. So uh, intersectional approach to data science, which is another way of characterizing what data feminism is, takes unequal power as its starting point and says, how do we identify unequal power? How do we challenge that unequal power? And how can we draw from all of our feminist teaching and learning in order to work against these unequal systems and ideally create new ones in their place, new, more equal, more equitable systems in their place? So in your book, you uh, talk about seven principles, and uh, if I'm correct, to each of the chapters relates directly back to each of those principles as well. How did how did you come up with those principles then? So if you're talking of the background here of how you got to be here and the importance of intersectionality, how did those develop? How are the principles developed from that? Yeah, you know, so Catherine and I, you know, both of us in our different ways have had a lot of engagement and exposure to different types of feminist groups and organizations and scholarship and theory and many different sort of manifestations of feminism in the world. And so when we were trying to 
distill what we ourselves had learned from all of these experiences, we really, we sort of had a massive brainstorming session and we thought like, okay, like what are the really important things that we think feminism can teach data scientists and data curious people more generally, like what are these principles? And, you know, some of them, when you have been operating from a feminist perspective for a long time are quite obvious, you know, like considering context, right? Like a feminist approach always considers the context from which any particular assertion arises. Others similarly about embracing emotion and embodiment, you know, for as long as we can trace back, a feminist approach has really required that we elevate these other ways of knowing, sort of make them on par with more objective or more quantified ways of uh, knowing and learning about the world. And then, so anyway, so some of those were pretty easy to articulate. And then others, we sort of had the germ of an idea, but we wanted a way to try to encapsulate um sort of diffuse ideas into a more coherent principle. And you see this a little bit, I would say, in the principle about um, uh, challenging binaries and hierarchies, rethinking binaries and hierarchies. And that was, we were sort of, we were, again, you know, thinking about the ways that feminists have challenged uh, binary divisions across time and sort of pointed out how there are sort of secretly hierarchical relationships, like, you know, the relationship between men and women is doubly false, like, first of all, because there are more than two genders, and second of all, because no single gender is better than any of the others intrinsically, right? Um, so it took a little bit of time for us to figure out how to map that onto uh, onto data and data science. Um, and then there's ones that we left out, you know, that we have sort of come to us a little bit later, sitting with this work for longer, doing more of this type of work, putting it out in the world, trying to sort of live our values. And we've realized that there are probably some things that we, you know, maybe there should be more principles or we should have emphasized differently. Um, so yeah, I don't know, Catherine, if you have anything to add to that process. Yeah, just, yeah, it's exactly that. And, uh, like, I think one of the ones that we kind of put in and then we took out, uh, was I actually don't even remember how we worded it, but it was around uncertainty. So it was around like the, um, the imperative to acknowledge uncertainty at some level, but then it kind of got rolled in, at least when we discussed it in the book, we do have a discussion of uncertainty and I think it's rolled into the chapter that's around elevating emotion and embodiment. Um, uh, so that's kind of one that, you know, it's self uncertain. <laughs> um, and then there's, there's ones that like we've discussed since then, and we may end up like writing further about. So like we've been talking, for example, recently about, um, thinking more broadly about consent. Like there's some really interesting work. Um, uh, I'm thinking here in particular of the, who's the Detroit digital justice coalition, and Allied Media Conference uh, produced a zine that's about uh, consentful technology and like thinking through like what does it mean in a when you're living in a day and age when our informatic systems are extracting so much data from us, um, so, sort of maybe with our consent if we like you know scrolled through some like really long legal thing, um, but often without our consent and often used to produce knowledge about us without our consent. Like, what does it mean to bring feminist theory about consent to bear on that? Like, and how would we design a, a consentful technology to use their words? Um, but that's you know, that's kind of future and or in discussion right now. So it, is, it was not something that actually like made it into the principles. Now, since your book has been out, have you seen people take a different approach to their analysis? Have you seen changes in the industry? Um, really quick examples. I know in the area of AI, I've been at certain seminars where they talk about how when AI was being developed, they didn't even take a female's voice into account. Um, it was based on a male voice. Um, and then going to the data viz side of things, to your point, Lauren, it's like when you're trying to map out a narrative of people who've been in data viz, you mostly end up getting more, you know, white, white European males as being part of that narrative where there's been other cultures that has also done things, maybe not in the way that 
Playfair may have done it, but it was still visualization, like, you know, Inca tribes and things of that nature. But I guess getting back to the question, like, have you seen any changes in the industry or people's approaches in terms of their analysis? I don't know about industry per se. Like, I don't know if we're in a position to know that, but... Well, I guess maybe things you've observed. Sorry, I don't mean to make you the weight of the industry. <laughs> industry <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> industry can be pretty general. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so I mean, some of the things that have been very exciting for us um, are things like we've seen data feminism, uh, I think, be used in a lot of undergraduate classrooms in many different fields. So like um, we've had people tell us they're using our textbooks who are from everything from like statistics to um, sort of public health to computer science to urban planning to architecture to art. Like, you know, I think, and of course, all like, you know, humanities. Um, and so I think that, you know, we all, we often were like talking about like, who are we writing for? And I think students were one of those key audiences in mind. So that's been really exciting. Um, and then there have been things we've been a part of or that have started, uh, like like I'm thinking right now, there's something called the Data Feminism Network that was founded by uh, the young women in, uh, I think, Canada. Is that right, Lauren? I, I believe. Yeah, I saw them. On, I saw them on Twitter this morning, and I meant to yeah. follow. I meant to follow them. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and like we, I mean, we're thrilled that's happening, but it's not our. Like we're not organizing it or anything. Oh, so it's that kind was of awesome. Ask. That like, yeah, it's <laughs> yeah, a data I mean, feminism just, podcast. I thought yeah, that was they yours. Just yeah, just released a podcast, <laughs> and like, so like that's kind of incredible. And they just co-produced a big. Um, a, a teaching guide to our book with a group called to the Toronto women in data science. And so like, again, we didn't have anything to do with it. So, so I mean, I think that's kind of exciting when you to see the work go out in the world and take shape and see people want to gather and talk about it. And um, there've been many reading groups and, um, and things like this and maybe, Oh, and Lauren, there's the um, policy uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I was thinking there's been, you know, I don't want to claim direct influence on any particular project, but I do feel like the follow up to our book was accompanied by at the least more people letting us know about specific interventions they were taking in their fields, which is honestly, I think the level at which you know, we're starting from nothing. You know, Catherine and I started writing this book in 2017 and we were in a, we, let's see, like our relationship to big tech, we were in a bad place at that point. No one was even really talking about these issues on a general stage. You know, this was pre, I mean, I'm trying to think of this, this sort of, not, I guess like Cambridge Analytica had happened, but there really wasn't this national conversation about algorithmic bias. There had, I don't even think, for example, like that ProPublica expose of the pre-trial risk assessment algorithm and the discriminatory ways in that operated, that was really just circulating among people in the know. Like there hadn't yet been uh, a groundswell of outrage about that. But one of the really nice things about having written this book and having it had the visibility that it had is that people come to us and tell us about their amazing projects. And so I'm thinking in particular, like um, John Schwabish and Alice Fang's guide of, to applying racial equity to data visualization, which is a super practical and thoughtful you know, viz paper about some ways in which you can think through very basic design decisions when selecting color palettes, when ordering your data, when labeling your data, things like this. Um, that they let us know about when that was in production. Um, similarly, you know, we've had zero relationship to this, but the groundswell of support around documentation and benchmarking for uh, algorithmically derived software, you know, like I'm thinking of the data sheets for data sets paper that came out of Microsoft research that is just calling for documentation and benchmarks about certain models and their performance on certain data sets and what's in scope and what's out of scope. Um, we've seen the total explosion of the Algorithmic Justice League, Joy Bolamwini's work. Um, you know, this is, you know, we like to, the Ruha Benjamin's work on um, 
on, uh, you know, her book and then her, her Ida B. Wells Just Data Lab and its various initiatives. I mean, we've, I feel lucky to sort of be caught up in the, you know, the currents around these incredibly catalyzing projects. And it seems like along with us, other people were also identifying the problem and trying to think their way through approaches to this sort of new algorithmically driven world in which we all live, whether or not we, to Catherine's point earlier, consent or not, you know? So I, Thank you for sharing a lot of that information, too, and just uh, the impact or maybe not the impact, but at least um, the stories you've heard based off of the release of your book. Um, I'm wondering a bit more about you personally, too, because data feminism is so specific to the world of data. And I'm thinking, too, that <laughs> which came first, data or feminism? For both of you. <laughs> oh. That's a good question. That's a, that's a really good question. <laughs> I know it's it's so hard. I feel like I've been like both deeply nerdy and a, a devout feminist for so long. I can't tell. Because <laughs> I, I feel like for myself, I, I also identify as a feminist um, and have for a while. And I come from a very conservative region of the world, Wisconsin. And I believe for me, feminism came first and it informed so much of what I did personally. And then data came next. And then the more progressive uh, data started to become and the lens on data, especially with its exponential growth, especially the past five years alone, um, I can't separate them anymore. So I'm curious if you were in data first or were you identifying as a feminist first? I think for me, I was data first, in fact, uh, which is not to say I didn't have all these like proto-feminist things that I was doing, but I think I wouldn't have, until I was a woman in tech, I uh, didn't understand, I would say, the need for feminism and for naming feminism. <laughs> so I think like that, that, so that for me, you know, from a very young age, I was sort of sort of doing feminist things and would always refuse to use like the male, like his to mean everybody. <laughs> like I just felt like that's incorrect basically. Um, uh, so small things like that, but I would not at the time have ever identified, like I wouldn't have said I'm a feminist from that, those things. But then as I was a software developer in various different um, startup companies and then larger companies and, and then a freelancer um, encountering, you know, the rampant sexism of tech. <laughs> and I was like, wow, okay, like this. Uh, she nods uh, knowingly, yes. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, and then even more so, you know, and then, and then at that point I sort of felt like it did sort of come into the feminist identity and sort of self-identified. And then it was even re- iterated for me when I became a mother, like a pregnant person and then a mother and a breastfeeding person um, because of all of the different ways that our society, our spaces, our workplaces, our communities like don't support this like very basic function of giving life and feeding people, <laughs> you know? Um, so I think like, yeah, it's, if anything, it's sort of just grown and grown and grown. But I think there, there was a but I think I, I was I was like doing tech things kind of before I was overtly self-identifying as a feminist. And then I was like seeing the need to overtly self-identify as a feminist. Well, so, yeah, I'm trying to think how far back I go. Um, you know, I'm, I, I think a lot of this dates. I, OK, so I'll sort of echo Catherine in saying that my commitment to naming myself as a feminist has definitely waxed and waned over the years and has certainly been reaffirmed by my, as I've traveled to different technical spaces and experienced, you know, overt misogyny and patriarchy, you know, there's no other way to describe it. And it's, it's so real and it's shocking, especially when you come from other more inclusive spaces. And, you know, I have this, um, 
joint appointment now where I'm, I, I'm half in an English department, then I'm half in what's in effect. Uh, it's sort of like an applied statistics department, but those two departments draw from very different, not just disciplines, but really sort of siloed academic structures. And it reminds me of both sort of early days in digital humanities when there were people from computer science coming together with people from humanities degrees and the same kind of pushback that you got as someone trying to operate in technical spaces. Um, and it reminds me also of when I worked in tech in the 2000s. Um, but I just want to go on the record and say that in my high school, I was both a riot girl and I was the editor of the high school yearbook. So I guess that was not very punk rock at the time. Um, <laughs> but I insisted that I make the theme of the high school yearbook be the internet. This was in 1996, and I had barely used the internet, by the way. Um, nice. And so I feel like I, I established both my feminist and my my uh, data credentials early on. Um, but no, I mean, I, I guess I'll say that like one of the things that uh, recently I've been thinking about, and to sort of Catherine's point about having these personal experiences that draw you back to feminism, I as I get older and sort of honestly sort of rack up experience points in the ways of the world, which I think is similar to the way that pretty much anyone from any sort of uh, minoritized group experiences the world, it becomes less about improving things for me personally. Like I'm fine. Like I can handle people insulting me. I just roll my eyes and keep on going. Um, but one of the really powerful things about a continual return to feminism is that it reminds us that it's not just about any individual, you know, gaining a leg up on anyone else. You know, it's not like, you know, the clawing your way into the level of the men or the white people or the people in the global north, like whatever, whoever sort of occupies these seats of power. It's about redistributing that power in ways that make it more equitable for everyone. And without a broader basis, that's not just about me and my life and my work and the respect that I think I deserve, um, I think I often lose sight of that. And that's why I find a lot of the writings of other people and honestly the actions and behaviors of other people, um, other feminists, like it's so important for me to hear that constantly and to be reminded of what the real goal is. And I think increasingly because I draw so much inspiration from other feminists, I like I I think it's important to honor that and name those folks and give sort of distribute credit broadly. I resonate with a lot of what you just said, both of you. Um, and I guess just to add to Sarah's question, like, do you feel that your data has been your superpower to help combat the issues that you've had? You know, the mis you know the misogyny and all the other inequities that you've experienced as you who embrace your feminism? Like, do you feel that the data has helped you fight that fight, your expertise in it? It's an interesting question. I'm like trying to think of whether I ever brought data. I mean, there was certainly like the professional work that I was doing as a technology, you know, software developer and data Based programming. Yeah, I'll just add to help with the question because I know for me recently I've been I'm in a phase where I want to give back, and I definitely there's been a lot of things happening in the world that you just can't ignore, and it's just yeah. like okay, what can I do? And then I have this yeah. skill set or I have this talent. Maybe through that oh, I can I help others. Yeah, I I totally see what you're saying now. Yeah, exactly. Um, yes, I mean I feel like it, for me at least that's. Um, a place where I feel like I, I have some technical knowledge. I have experience. I also have experience sort of on the managerial side of those kinds of projects too. Like you can kind of manage a project to deliver something to the world, <laughs> whether it's a research paper or like a, a an interactive map or a software system or something. Um, and I think that's very much what on my mind right now, actually, as I've been like thinking and doing the sort of next step since data feminism, where I'm trying to work on ways to sort of actuate those principles to like do those principles. Um, and it, it involves data and it involves specifically building technologies to support data activists who are working on gender-based violence. Um, but I'm also, uh, 
But one of the things I'm thinking about right now is how to, even though those are the skills that I come to this work with, um, and obviously I think they're important skills, <laughs> you know, um, how do we also not center the data and center the tech in these larger justice conversations? Because often, you know, what we can do with data or tech is such a small part, like it's, a, it's an important part, potentially, depending on who you're working with, um, and what their need is for data and technology. So it can be an important part of a larger struggle, but it's so small in relationship to all the other work that needs to happen for social change to, to happen. And so I'm, I've been sort of thinking about like, how do I like bring the skills that I bring um, and do them to the best of my ability in collaboration with others, but also not, um, but be really humble about like the limitations and the small contribution that is the data and technology side of things to larger things around social change and, and enter those conversations with that attitude, I guess. Is no, that totally makes sense. I mean, I know some of the work, well, some of the things that I, I work with the Tableau Foundation and, you know, they have a racial equity data hub. So this, and so I think if we're working with a lot of those nonprofits, our data talents can help you know, bring a little bit, it's not validity, it's more like it can bring more, it may, It can kind of get a different angle to the story or, or, or the inequity. And it also can help people who need to see like the numbers or the trends. And that can complement, you know, the sentiments and the emotions that comes out of these um, different um, social inequities. So I like that you brought that up about making sure we balance that because it's so true. Sometimes we can get caught up in our expertise that we need to make sure that the issue gets it gets the spotlight. Yeah, because that's the thing. And I think like, you know, it's like centering the tech or the data is like, again, kind of like buying into that, like techno heroic techno solutionist thing of like mm -hmm. the, the tech's going to solve all our problems or that, yeah. if, you know, we just get the algorithm right, then we can fire everybody and hire the robots. Yeah, sort of like how do we put, you know, think of data technology as useful and but like put them in their place and in their place is a small part of the larger universe. I think one of the things that really strikes me, especially talking to you two and then some of the other conversations we've had because of the podcast, is how important it is to have people like you in the places where you're at. And just while you were responding to Alan's last question, too, on data being your superpower, um, the one thing I had in the back of my mind was you wrote a book, both of you that so many people couldn't and didn't. You did something I couldn't do. You did something Alan couldn't do. You did something so many of us couldn't do. So you put something out into the world that was so needed. And to me, that is a superpower. And just as you said before, a whole generation of young women who are going through their own journey right now and figuring out their place in a world where we've been in it for a few years already, you're, you're being influencing, you're influencing that right now with this because you did that. And so you're going to keep this alive just by doing that. But that's part of why we want to be here too, so that the world can see people like this and learn things that maybe they didn't know existed before. So thank you for doing that. And thank you for doing uh, something that is so impactful to a lot of us. Um, there's also a book. I'm curious, too. If, I, I'm assuming the answer is yes, but I don't want to assume. But there's another book that came out this year, too, that um, had similar themes. Uh, if you've read it, it's uh, not... Um, in the data world, so to speak, but it includes data. Um, it's Invisible Women, Data Bias in a World Designed for Men. And uh, <laughs> that one also is just as meaningful because it talks about some of the decisions, too, that went into even design, like the astronaut suits that were never made for women either. Yeah. So yeah. I was curious if either of you had read that book. I see nods, so. <laughs> Yeah, we, 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 yeah, sure. Yeah, you know, we, we, I, that, so that, that book came out maybe 
a little bit before ours. I feel like we were aware of it existing when we were writing our book proposal because we were like, oh, look at this book. And we sort of saw the description and we weren't sure what it would have to say. And I've since read it. And I think one of the things it does really well is explain the, like you said, the sort of the decision process, the sort of how do you end up at the point where you want to send an all women flight crew into space and you find the astronauts and you train them and you launch the media campaign and you do everything and you get to the point where they need to put on their spacesuits and you realize that there's only one spacesuit that they can all five of them or I don't even know how many people are on a rocket ship three um, can fit in. Right. You know, and I feel like it's or the, the example that I actually remember from that book is um, the one about why shoveling snow off of sidewalks is a gender equity issue. To me, that was the most powerful one. And it talks about this study that says that um, it sort of works backwards from the fact that women more than men, and I want to flag this binary because I want to come back to this for a sec, um, but women more than men uh, tend to work non-standard business hours because they are more often than not raising children, taking care of household tasks and, you know, work these sort of more less stable jobs. And as a result, they tend to either walk or take public transportation to those jobs rather than drive the car to the driveway at 8 a.m. and return the car in the driveway at 6 p.m. Um, and because it is mostly women who are walking on sidewalks and walk to their buses or to their part-time jobs or whatever, if you institute more uniform or consistent sidewalk shoveling, fewer women break their legs while walking to their jobs and therefore end up in the hospital. And therefore the outcome is registered in hospital accidents in the snow, more women trip and fall in the snow than do men. But the cause is the sidewalk shoveling. And the reason is because of the ways in which workloads are distributed heterogeneously across um, women with part-time jobs versus men being the primary, uh, uh, what do you call it, breadwinner? Bread earner? Breadwinner? Bread Whatever that expression is, right? And so it was like seeing that unraveled for me, it made total sense when it was spelled out, but I never for a minute would have thought about that had uh, Caroline Criado Perez, I think that's her name, put it in writing. With that said, one of the things that I do think the book could have done a lot better is acknowledge that it's not just like a men versus women type situation, but there are many, many other aspects of identity and not just with respect to gender, but all sorts of intersectional identities that are compounding and producing disparate effects along many different dimensions and not just in terms of gender. Um, mm -hmm. But again, I think that, you know, that book did so much to, I think, open all of our eyes to the ways in which gender, like it has these sort of um, snowballing or cascading effects in ways that we might not even see in the beginning. Yeah, that's similar actually to something else I heard about. Um, so basically there's this other thing about women having more car accidents than men. But the thing is when they do crash test dummies, they've always been built off of a male physique. So in terms of height and weight, so it doesn't take into account when they're trying to do safety testing. So that kind of reminds me of that same thing that you brought up. As a five foot one woman, I totally identify with that study <laughs> and cars not identifying for me. Yeah, we have an, we even have an example in the book of a, a project done by the pudding, the data journalist group, the pudding, oh, yeah. about pockets. I don't know if you've seen that oh, yeah, one. Oh, yeah, Amber Thomas, yeah. Yeah, that like systematic study of pockets where they showed that uh, women, uh, well, women carry more things but have uh, terribly tiny pockets. <laughs> so, um, so it goes to like all these aspects of everyday life. So everything from like really, um, you know, high impact, like life or death situations into the most mundane sort of circumstances. And I think it wasn't even until something like 2012 that the NIH mandated uh that's uh, research uh health research be gender diverse uh, yeah. in fact and so up till that point um women and or like female uh lab animals were not included in research studies because uh they menstruated which then it became like we don't know what to do with that like that's like just such this unknown variable or whatever so they were like okay well we'll just exclude them uh, 
and then uh, treat women as if they're just men and then, <laughs> you know, so. Uh. Yeah, there's another book that we cite called, that has the title, Women Are Not Small Men, which is about all of these inequities. Is it small men, little men, something like that. Um, but all about all of these health inequities that derive from the fact that so many medical studies are conducted only on men and then scaled, just sort of scaled down and assumed, presumed to work. I feel like there's so many examples that could be used right now of how women have not been brought to the table or given a seat at the table in so many things. And that's why I think your book is so incredibly important, especially in the world of data right now. Yeah. Uh, we are coming up uh, at time for our podcast today, but uh, just to leave our listeners with something beyond your book, what, what would you recommend for them to really gain understanding in this space so that we can start to do the learning and start to hopefully create uh, more education and understanding. I mean, there's so many amazing books right now that are, ha that have come out in the, around our book and the couple of years since. Um, I mean, this is off the top of my head and I hate to name names because I'm sure that I'm leaving out really important works. Um, but, uh, Sophia Noble's algorithms of oppression, which is about how Google sort of reinforces racism and sexism through in effect, it's predictive, the predictive software that generates its search results. Uh, Meredith Broussard's artificial unintelligence, which is a, just a great primer on, how AI really works and what people mean when they say AI in different contexts and why uh, AI is really hard. Um, I think I also already mentioned Ruha Benjamin's Race After Technology. Um, Wendy Chun. Wendy Chun's uh, uh, Discriminating Data. I think it comes out next week or something, but it is amazing look into really core statistical concepts and how, you know, a lot of the times people say, oh, data systems are biased because of the data set. And what Wendy's book does is say, like, it's not just the data that's creating the bias. It's the way that we, the way that we model things in which we choose systems that converge rather than express diversity we tend to prefer clusters that cohere around a unitary characteristic rather than privilege um, multiple and disparate connections. Like it's super interesting and I think is really going to change how we think about things. I don't know, Catherine, do you, I'm a, oh, a design justice, Sasha Katsens, a chalks book, which has amazing practical approaches to designing uh, with an equity lens. I don't know. I'm, I'm Catherine, what else should I add to our list here? Yeah. All those I think are great and I think have really influenced us and um, the thing that I would add I think it would be really interesting for folks to track other sort of equity focused uh, movements and uh, groups of people and I'm thinking specifically about there's the group data for black lives um, which is really looking at like well what does it look like again to use data science for black life to support black life enhance black life um, and so I think that's a really interesting group to, to follow their work or get involved. And then um, there's also a really interesting movement around indigenous data sovereignty. So there's both a lot of, there's a lot of scholarship being produced in that area by indigenous scholars. And then um, it's also a kind of a practitioner based movement as well. And I think that's also really interesting because these are perspectives that for those of us who are kind of working in the space of like, what is it? There's, I think, still a lot of questions that practitioners have of like, well, how do I undertake racial equity and data? Or how do I make sure not to erase indigenous or native people and data? Or how do I take a gender lens to my data? And so like, these are groups that are, um, working both in scholarship and in social movements and in practice to try to like really articulate those things. And they have amazing and really visionary ideas. So I think I would encourage folks to, to check those out as well. Great. Thank you so much for that. And Alan, any last thoughts from you? Um, yeah, I just want to, want to just let the, can you let the audience know any projects that you're working on and then also how we can reach out to you? you know, like check out, not to like, you know, your, any social media handles that you have. 
Sure. We're both on lots of platforms. I'm not, not TikTok yet, but my kids want me to be on TikTok. <laughs> we have not taken that step either. To no, not TikTok. <laughs> um, no, you can follow me at uh, Kanarinka on Twitter. And um, yeah, and we'd love to be in touch. You can check out also the, I run a lab called the Data Plus Feminism Lab at uh, MIT. And you can check out our website at dataplusfeminism.mit.edu. Um, and you can see some of the projects. I think I referenced one or two of the projects today. So. Yeah, I uh, I am also on a lot of platforms. I'm Lauren F. Klein, K-L-E-I-N, on Twitter and um GitHub and I sort of am a reluctant Instagrammer. Um, but yeah, and then I also, my lab group is just called the Digital Humanities Lab. I've somewhat embarrassingly not moved the website from Georgia Tech over to Emory servers yet, even though I've been at Emory for three years, but I blame the pandemic. Um, it's there. It has a bunch of my projects. My big project that I'll be sort of soft launching soon is called Data by Design. It's a online interactive counter history of data visualization. So thinking about how we can the history of data visualization in a way that centers both people and data and that sort of demands that context be taken into account and features an alternative host of uh, central figures in the story we tell. That it's uh, dataxdesign.io. And uh, we're going to give you people the link to the dev site pretty soon, but we need to finish up a couple of visualizations. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds really exciting. Yeah, it and does. Cannot wait to see that once it's released. Uh, thank you to both of you for being here with us today. We were very excited to have you here. And I feel like uh, you've set a standard for who we want for people on our podcast now, right, Alan? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I definitely, we definitely probably could talk to you for the rest of the afternoon but we yes. all need to get dinner so yeah. <laughs> but to wrap up uh to our listeners um we think that Catherine's and lauren's book is incredibly important so we are going to be giving away a copy of it all you have to do is reshare our podcast and tag us on twitter our handle on Twitter is BDataLit. So tag us and you'll be put into a drawing for a book on data feminism from Lauren and Catherine. So thank you to our listeners for tuning in today and we'll see you soon.